This is Cindy Wallace-Lage, and you're listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Trinix, trust in what's next. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. And by Xylem, let's solve water. This is session 238. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. We have a great show for you today. Jay Casarabada, Associate Vice President and Director of Environmental Services, for Black & Veatch, provides an absolutely brilliant discussion centering on water's role in decarbonization. I, this one's a keeper for sure. You're going to love it. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show. Thank you very much for your sponsorship to the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Trinix, Mentor APM, Woodard and Curran, Interra, and Xylem. That is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, thought leadership, and education, and I thank you all. And I'd like for you, the listener, if you would please do me a favor, if you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. It goes a long way. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And, oh, please also remember to subscribe to the podcast. Very important there, the subscription. Well, it is time to get on to the main event, our interview with Ajay Kasarabada of Black & Veatch. So let's get that water flowing. Well, AJ, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. It is great to have you on. How are you today? Doing good. Good. Beautiful, yeah. sunny day in Kansas City and super happy. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yes. Uh, so for those who don't, uh, who are unfamiliar with you, AJ, could you please give us a little on your background and how you came to the water sector? Yes, yes. Actually, I'm, uh, I'm a chemical engineer by education and uh, been with Black & Beach for about uh, 25 years now. And, you know, my undergraduate education was in India. And when I came to do my master's a uh, long time ago, it was in the mid-90s uh, at Michigan State University, my uh, research assistantship was in water, actually. So I was, I was pursuing a master's degree in environmental engineering. And my research work was on trihalomethanes and how we could use um, ozonation to uh, oxidize some of the natural organic matter that actually when you chlorinate, they cause trihalomethane. So we were trying to take care of the trihalomethane formation potential. And so that was my research work, actually. And uh, 
you know, I wanted to do a lot of, uh, you know, work on the water side, uh, continue the research work in my professional career. And, uh, and I was uh, wanting to, uh, you know, work for Black & Veatch on the ozonation and water side. But, you know, sometimes destiny has different things. I found myself on the environmental side, on the air side. And, and that's rest is history. But I still do a lot of work with water. And, um, and it kind of uh, did a lot of projects, actually, on whether it was water or even wastewater. So, yeah, a lot of very interesting things that, uh, that in my 24-year career, it's always been about water and air, and they go together, you know? Yeah. Hey, could you expand a little on, on the connection between water and air uh, and, and how, how those disciplines uh, interre- interreact and interrelate? Oh, yeah. So when you start thinking about, in general, when you start thinking about environmental, we're always in the business of, um, you know, how do we, first of all, uh, look at it from a risk perspective and how we mitigate that risk. So when you're talking about water, if you talk about water treatment plants, they do have operations that require air emissions. So you may have blowers, emergency generator sets, diesel engine sets where you have emissions. So, so when you have those operations, you have emissions and those are regulated and you need to get permits uh, to ensure that those operations are permitted and built and, um, and, and all of those kinds of where air and water come in. On the wastewater side, it can get a little bit more where you're actually in some cases where you are having, you know, anaerobic digestion on site and you're creating digester gas and you're combusting digester gas on site as part of a, you know, combined heat and power system or in, in a boiler. Or you may be having sludge dryers or uh, sludge incinerators where, uh, you know, the pollutants could be a little bit more. That's where the air emissions come in. And um, we have to get them through the permitting uh, aspect as well. So understanding the water unit operations that lead to some of the emissions on the air side is kind of key to ensure a successful permitting outcome. And that's where air and water come in, comes in. And now it's even more because now we're ta- starting to talk about how to improve you know, carbon dioxide is, uh, you know, you can take out carbon out of the environment, out of the air. And one of the things that we want to do that is uh, the relationship has kind of graduated and matured. In, it's, it's gone on steroids right now where, you know, where I talk about it takes water to decarbonize. So you're actually using water as a raw material to uh, as a source of hydrogen to to basically you know take out carbon dioxide so that relationship became from a transactional oh yeah you have air emissions and at a water treatment plant or wastewater treatment plant to a more robust uh, relationship where you are actually you're needing water as a raw material to decarbonize Um, and of course on the flip side we're also looking at decarbonizing the water and wastewater treatment operations so that their emissions are also going down. So now it's the kind of the relationship has graduated to a more, a bigger outcome to solve a larger mega trend in the planet today, which is global warming, you know? Absolutely. And so, uh, by the way, great segue, uh, you should be a podcast host. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's, let's get into this decarbonization requires water. Can you explain in in a little more detail uh how water facilitates or is required for decarbonization yeah so for that uh we need to first step back a little bit and say what is it that is required um to decarbonize one of the biggest things that that you know global warming is happening um at least the science tells us that it is because of man-made 
carbon-related emissions. And the way you want to reduce that carbon-related emissions is by not burning fossil fuels or minimizing the fossil fuels uh, or minimizing the carbon content of the fossil fuels. So there may be some bridge fuels uh, like natural gas that could be utilized. But when you start talking about uh, a green fuel, you're now starting to think about potentially hydrogen. Probably all of us have heard of the hydrogen economy. So how do you generate that hydrogen? Almost 80 to 90% of all the hydrogen generated today comes from methane as a raw material where they crack the methane molecule and get hydrogen out. And that's a very carbon intensive process because in the process of taking that hydrogen out and breaking the methane molecule, you release CO2 as well. So now what they're trying to do is, hey, we want to create hydrogen. We're going to burn that hydrogen. We're going to use that hydrogen in making other products like ammonia and methanol, sustainable aviation fuels. It's this whole pipeline of where my chemical engineering background comes in, where all these molecules are being generated from your base molecules. All goes back to unbelievably, fundamentally, the first element, which is hydrogen. And and there are only two sources. One is either as part of uh, you know hydrocarbon, which is all the carbon hydrogen chains, or as part of you know water H2O. I mean, yes, there's some biomass that has hydrogen in it as well. But basically, if you start thinking about where is the source of hydrogen, it's predominantly in water, and that's where you're getting to see how do you create that trap and cap capture that hydrogen out of water by electrolyzing it. But then when you want to electrolyze it, you still need green electrons so that it's called green hydrogen and not fossil electrons. So so basically, that's where you're seeing this marriage between a lot of renewable energy projects that generate green electrons to basically electrolyze water to create hydrogen. Now, now once that hydrogen comes out, it could be blended a little bit with natural gas to minimize the carbon footprint in power plants. It can be used to make ammonia and fertilizers, or it could be converted to ammonia. And some people are more comfortable transporting ammonia, which is NH3, um, than transporting hydrogen because, you know, there's a reason why hydrogen doesn't exist on the planet freely because, you know, um, it just escapes through anything. It's very small uh, from a molecular structure. It's really small. And um, and so that's the reason why we're seeing a lot more focus on generating green electrons first and using that to electrolyze water to create hydrogen. And then you play with that. That points that actually creates a segue to the next challenge is where do we get the green electrons and do the green electrons exist at the same place as there is water and water as we all know is again impacted by you know climate change either you have lack of water and or more water in this country there seems to be you know a lot of instances in geographic areas where there is a lack of water so how do we you know marry these two concepts of using water for making hydrogen when you don't have water for different other uses. So that becomes the next conundrum that we're all trying to solve. Yeah. And I, I posed that exact question recently to uh, Anthony Curry, a financial journalist who uh, has been following the green hydrogen spot. And I'd, I'd get, mm-hmm. I'd love to get your perspective on how that dynamic works, the production of green electrons versus the location of water and how, how you see that puzzle coming together? So it has to be two ways. Either you take electrons to where the water is or you bring water to where the gray electrons is. If both are there, great, in one spot, it's good. But this is where, again, um, you know, it goes back to when you start moving things, either water 
or electrons or large distances, it's going to start bringing in a lot of things. First of all, um, you need to start thinking about how much water. To be honest, um, you know, you probably need, I mean, if you do a H2O, it's a molecular weight of 18. And, uh, you know, you need basically for a kilogram of, um, you know, hydrogen, you probably, you know, need about uh, nine kilograms of of water and nine kilograms is like nine liters. So it's roughly about three gallons of, of water that you need stoichiometric metrically to make hydrogen. But there's also a lot of other water needs that go in as part of this hydrogen uh, electrolysis process where you actually end up probably doubling or tripling the amount of water that you need. So let's assume for every kilogram of hydrogen, you know, you need about, you know, you know, 10 or 15 gallons of, of water. Now, a typical golf course top probably uses a lot of water. You know, irrigation uses a lot of water. Uh, personal use is a lot of water. Industrial use, there is a lot of water. So how do we start siphoning out additional water to make hydrogen, potentially to make ammonia and all of that stuff? So, so now you start thinking about politics, policy, um, geographical location, and all of those things become part of a bigger, uh, you know, pieces of the jigsaw that needs to be uh, talked about. Um, so on the, on the electron side, um, it, it does take a lot of acreage to build solar farms. And so then you start competing for land. And if you want to build transmission lines, it's going to take land, linear routing will consume land, water pipelines will consume land, you know, uh, long stretches of land. So it becomes a land issue as well. You know, do we use the land for, um, crops or do we use the land for solar to generate electrons to make hydrogen? Um, and this gets into that interesting debate of, you know, does one acre of, say, you're growing corn to make ethanol, does one acre of growing corn more greener than one acre of solar panels to make green electrons? So these are the kind of real things that we are, we are facing right now as a nation where money is coming in. You know, money was even given to make ethanol as well you know by the government money is also coming in for renewables so now we need to start thinking about how does all of these that money that's been given be utilized to um, build this infrastructure projects to 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 uh, move green electrons to where water is to move or either move water to where the green electrons are and all of the other other projects you know absolutely so that, that's a great great kind of high level policy analysis on uh, on green hydrogen uh i don't want to confine us solely to green hydrogen so what are some of the other uh water touch points to decarbonization yes so i think uh that's a very important and a good question uh dave uh what we are beginning to see is you know we've probably all of us have heard about net zero commitments from the emission side right so companies are making i'll give a quick quick 30 second 101 on what the net zero is basically you have three kinds of emissions companies all of us have uh just scope one which is you directly emit scope two is something that you you know get out of the grid or somebody else's burning fuel to get you that either hot water or electrons uh, or cold water or steam and scope three is your supply chain which is which is basically upstream downstream all that that goes into into making you um, develop your product uh, or sell your product so when the sum of those three is zero then you have you hit that net zero so companies are committing to net zero from an emissions perspective so they're going up and down and and checking that uh, the box off and trying to figure out how to calculate and compute those emissions. While that is happening, what we are also beginning to see is 
we're seeing that there's a huge um, resource that people are not even thinking about that also equally has an impact on global warming and change, or you're seeing the consequence of some of the global warming changes, which is either a lot of water or lack of water. And, and that's where water is coming into the picture. And companies are now saying that, you know what? We have these corporate social responsibility goals. We have this ESG, environmental, societal, and governance goals. And it's just not about emissions. It's also about what we do as a company or as an organization about water and how, and that brings into, you know, other aspects of uh, the societal and governance, which is, uh, which could also be DEI, which is diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there's a lot of this new alphabet soup of acronyms that are all coming in and companies and chief sustainability officers are dealing with it at this time is how do we how does this impact the local communities we serve? And it becomes an environmental justice and a climate justice issue. So, so water is kind of going, so companies are basically what they're doing rather is in addition to emissions and net zero commitments, they're coming out with water commitments. And it is just not about the water that they consume in house and it's lost. In other words, you know, some 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 water is reused, some water is consumed, and some water that is you know treated and and goes into the treatment plant and and, and is disposed of. Uh, it's also about what are my suppliers using the water for, what are my end users using that water for, and as a company, we want to account for all of that and do something to make it a net positive to the environment. So, so that's where you know I've talked about climate as water and decarbonization requires water. That that aspect of what you could bring as a company to make a water positive environment uh, by having projects that could you know replenish a watershed, um, you know, or you know, do some ecosystem restoration work, nature based solutions, capturing rainwater, cap, you know, making those investments, working with the local communities. Um, and uh, nonprofit organizations, and of course, you know, folks that build infrastructure. All of these commitments and everything can only happen when you have actually projects on the ground, whether it is, whether it is uh, emissions or water. That's where companies like Black and Beach come in to make sure that um, we are building that infrastructure to realize this net zero, net positive water. You know, those commitments are actually happening, and you're walking the talk. Yeah, you you identified you said suppliers and i when when you talked about those scope two emissions a little bit and that's what immediately jumped into my mind was supply chain so how, how can we or what maybe i should ask what are the supply chain metrics or or how are companies viewing their supply chain from a that net positive water goal Right, right. No, it's actually scope uh, on the emission side. The supply chain is actually scope three, Dave. So basically scope two, scope two is your own uh, purchase of electrons or something like that. But you're right. What you're talking about is scope three on the emission side. On the water side, this terminology is not used, scope one, scope two, scope three, but it's kind of an extrapolation to think in those lines. So when companies are going to meet their commitments on the emission side, right? So they're basically saying, tell us, upstream or a downstream uh, folks, you know, we want to know what uh, what your emissions are. We want to know where the product that you're giving us, what is the embedded carbon in that product? 
what are you doing to minimize that embedded carbon? Because we are going to be reporting those emissions uh, in our scope three, but if you're having higher embedded carbons, so our our scope three goes up, we may go to a different supplier who's actually making those commitments and giving us lesser embedded carbon product. So they're actually going into the weeds of what's going on there from an emissions perspective. But as you know, once you start getting into the weeds, they're going to start getting data about how much water is going in, both upstream and downstream the suppliers. And that's where companies are looking at. Um, this is more, I think, I think if you think more about the food and beverage industry, that's where a lot of these additional, uh, they have probably a bigger scope three from an emissions perspective. Um, I mean, then maybe a power plant that may have a lot of emissions, but it's all scope one. It's a directly owned combustion emissions from the turbines or something like that. But a lot of companies, you'll be surprised, actually have a larger scope three footprint than a scope one footprint just because of the nature of the business and the upstream and downstream. They're beginning to see that, oh, our upstream folks are consuming a lot more water. Um, in, some, sometime, in some aspects where there is direct consumption of water, like data centers use a, uses a lot of water. Those are direct consumption. So companies, uh, you know, in in the data center space are actually investing in, you know, putting water back into the system. But it is there. But what's happening on the, on the scope three on the supply side is companies are getting a lot of data from the emissions, from an emissions perspective, but that is opening the doors to understanding where the water is going. And now they're getting, they're figuring out, okay, what can we do on the water side? It's still, it's still early days. You know, people are just, getting onto that uh, water positive concept, you know, uh, and tying that with your overall net zero concepts. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation that it's early days. I, I, I like that phraseology you used, AJ, um, because I, I think we are going to see so much change in the coming years uh, around this uh, net positive water, net zero, things of that nature. One of the things we've, when we've, when we've talked about uh, decarbonization and water is the the context, at least through my ears, has been more of a water scarcity uh, context. You know, and I I I think we all we all hear about the drought in the West and things of that nature. Although uh, with the atmospheric rivers, you, that may be subsided for a short while, but not long term. Um, in any event, how does how does decarbonization in water apply in an overabundance or too much of a water? Framework? Yeah. Yeah. That's again, again, a good question. So you probably last week we saw, you know, that instance of uh, almost uh, what was it in 24 hours uh, in Fort Lauderdale, there was uh, uh, almost seven years. I don't know the exact number of worth of rain fell over a period of 24 hours. And and Florida, South Florida has an excellent water management system. You know, we are involved in a lot of projects there as well. But every design, engineering design has a limit. And, you know, to my earlier point, when things that are, and they call that as a once in a thousand year event, but we're seeing a lot more of those occurrences happening more frequently, right? And so these could be you know, so an abundance of water manifests in two ways, right? One, it could be from a coastal flooding, inundation, or it could be inland flooding, um, such as a case what we saw in California, maybe in, in Fort Lauderdale. But it's also due to, you know, uh, 
global warming and glaciers melting and ice caps melting. You're seeing a lot more coastal coastal inundation happening. So a lot, so more water manifests in terms of inland, inland and coastal flooding. So now communities are beginning to see, you know, what does that mean from uh, climate analytics and risk mitigation and adaptation perspective? So water. Uh, the, the basic concept of more water is now leading to how do we manage that? You know, there are certain things we're doing on the emission side to hopefully slow down the global warming if all the commitments go through. But hey, if these things are happening more frequently, it's clear and present danger right now. We need to start thinking about it. So basically, com- communities are looking at these strategies right now and plans to whether if you're in a coastal community or an inland community, uh, what what are those threats that could happen with with um, you know presence of more water and now we are looking at um, you know coastal resiliency solutions you know maybe building new walls um, barriers nature-based ecosystem-based solutions wetlands um, to to absorb um, you know any storm surges so those are all the things you're going back into into almost to the nature to solve the problem but uh, those are the kind of things that we are, we are beginning to see on, on, on the issue of where there's more water, both coastal and inland flooding. And how do you mitigate, adapt? And also sometimes things are, go- things are going to happen. Everything that you do, things beyond the design capacity happen. So now how do you do from a, from a disaster response perspective, right? How do, we, how do we lift ourselves up quickly? Those are all the things that uh, our clients, communities, they're all grappling with right now. Absolutely. And I think uh, uh, your compatriot, Jim Schleyman, gave a yes. uh, a great uh, climate change planning and ad- adaptation uh, podcast interview a couple of years ago. Uh, for the listeners, you can go find the September 1st, 2020 episode uh, that was released. And Jim Schleyman does a great job there uh, diving into this issue as well. So, Jay, I, this has been a, f- a fantastic discussion. I've really uh, appreciated it and learned a lot. Uh, one of the things that I, I know about you that I I think um, is really important for the water industry to appreciate is number one, you're not solely in the water, right? You're not in the silo. You you kind of look outside the silo with not only with air, but you're also uh, a member of the ETAC. And I'd love to just pick your brain on what the ETAC is and and how it it uh, uh, impresses upon you or. Ch- how how you view water through the lens of ETAC? Oh yeah, thank you. That was uh, so. I was in the first uh, ETAC uh, charter committee meetings uh, this past last week, and ETAC is E T T A C, and it is Environmental Technologies Trade Advisory Commission. So it is actually a federally mandated commission that um, you know that picks about thirty leaders across different sectors that they constitute as environmental, which could be water, waste air, clean tech, climate tech, all of those different folks come in. Um, and the purpose of this federally mandated committee is to advise the U.S. Commerce Department um, on policies that could improve the export capability of U.S. manufacturers, whether it is goods or services. So so what happens in this ETAC committee meetings is, is we, um, and this was the first my first uh, part of this was a cohort that I was nominated and selected by uh, Honorable Secretary Gina Raimondo to this committee. And so they basically break up this committee into potentially three subcommittees and they tackle different 
issues. And, and then they come back with some policy recommendations. Then these policy recommendations, and this is the power of the U.S. government that is really amazing that uh, these policy recommendations are deliberated upon between the interagencies because this brings in the full power of just not commerce, but state and environment and trade and all these different aspects that that uh, are there at, at, at the uh, you know, it's they are the tools in our armory that that U.S. companies can utilize um, to benefit their opportunities. But it's mostly an export-oriented kind of a kind of a functionality to to improve goods and services exports. Um, but it was great uh, to be in the meetings last week, as uh, I'm in this cohort for between 2022 and 2024. It's a two-year cohort, um, and uh, looking forward to some of the um, recommendations. So so they're basically about um, what we'll be focusing on in the next couple of years. It's going to be focused on supply chain and circular economy. So we, we talked about that today. Uh, and the companies that are there represented, uh, so although we're representing individual companies, I'm representing Black Beach, but I'm also representing um, the environmental services sector. Um, there are also other companies that are in the good sector. In other words, they manufacture, it could be water treatment, water monitoring equipment, there are air monitoring equipment, waste companies. Non, um, there are also some, uh, uh, you know, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and some of the other organizations are also represented. So, so, so the things that we'll be potentially looking at um, is supply chain, as I said, and circular economy. We'll be looking at climate and energy and emerging technologies um, and innovation that's happening related to climate and and this clean tech. We'll also be looking at how do we facilitate uh, international trade for environmental companies, including water, air. Um, you know, waste management uh, and cl climate tech companies. How do we facilitate, how do we make, um, you know, our foreign countries or organizations and companies aware of the capabilities and also set in, um, you know, policies and standards that could be universal. So these are all be different things that we'll be looking at and providing comments that that will be taken up by the Commerce Department. So really looking forward to that, to this engagement. Uh, and um, hoping to make a difference. Yeah, it sounds awesome, and I I think it's so important to for those of us in the in the water sector to take a broader view and realize that you know while water is is really important, and we all think it's one of the most important things, we also need to take into account kind of the the bigger picture as well, so that we don't you know make decisions based yeah. solely on one thing. So I well, well said, well said, Dave. It's, it's all about dot connecting. The days are long gone where you correctly pointed out that you're in silos. We're only dealing with air or we're only dealing with water and, and, and where you're only dealing with electrons or something like that. All of these we're seeing, as I said, the biggest mega trend is global warming. It is forcing the dot connection. And the better and more you do dot connections, the better it is for all of us that as the ecosystem heads towards decarbonization, you're not missing that that boat and you're seeing value what your your piece that you're bringing value to the overall problem that you're solving right so in our minds and as companies the more we dot connect and collaborate the better for all of us yeah well touche you did it even better than i did thanks so thank, <laughs> thank you Ajay. uh uh i'd be remiss to to say goodbye without uh asking you if you have a leave behind message so do you have a leave behind message yes i do i do as i said you know maybe just a couple of seconds ago dot connect better and remember this 
climate is water and we are and as part of the water industry we are one of the building blocks that are needed to make this decarbonization mega trend that's happening actually happen on the ground and it's just not words um, so we are fundamental uh, in walking the talk when it comes to decarbonization wise words well thank you ajay uh, for those who want to find out more about you and your work uh, where can they go to find that information ajay so uh, so i'm on linkedin so you can follow me on linkedin and send me an in- invite so um, so you can just search for my name um, Ajay, A-J-A-Y, and last name K-A-S-A-R-A-B-A-D-A, and you'll find me on on LinkedIn, and then we can communicate. I check LinkedIn uh, every day, and uh, I'm pretty active on it, so we'll be looking forward to engaging. Awesome. Again, Ajay, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Dave, for the opportunity. All the best. Take care. Uh, Bye. Bye. Ajay was brilliant, don't you agree? I think it's so important to bring other disciplines to bear when addressing our water challenges. Call it the liberal arts major in me, but those differing perspectives differing perspectives offer tremendous value. Uh, thanks so much, Ajay. You were terrific, and I really appreciate our conversation, and thank you for spending some time with me. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. Again, That will take you to our landing page at Bluefield Research. The the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing agreement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research gives the Water Values podcast a home on the web. Uh, If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values. And you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that earlier described landing page as well. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you again to our sponsors. Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2023 calendar year include the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Trinix, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, and Xylem. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else 
Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.